Turn with me, please, to Exodus 32, where we spent some time last week, and we will this week and finish off then next week. Exodus 32. I hope we learned last week that uh, on our Christian journey to heaven, to the promised land of heaven, pictured by this journey, this physical journey that's taking place here in Exodus, that idols are a big problem. Idols are a problem to the unbeliever because it is idols that keep us from beginning the journey to heaven. But for the Christian, for Christian believers, idols distract us and delay us and divert us while yet on the journey. What is an idol? Well, we repeated what we put on last week on the hymn sheet there. We'll just read it again. It's a very helpful definition by A.W. Pink. He says, an idol is anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something that is quite harmless in itself, yet if it absorbs me, if it is given the first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. Anyone or anything which comes into competition with the Lord ruling over me in a practical way is an idol. And this week I discovered a a little thing from A.W. Tozer. He says this, an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol in the hand. So here in this passage is an idol in the hand, molded by Aaron and others, no doubt, into a golden calf. But idols are not always like that. Idols are in our minds. It is where we spend our thoughts and our affections. If they keep us from beginning the journey, that's an idol. If they distract and divert us and delay us on the journey as Christians, they're idols. So the idol is in the mind often, as well as in the hand. Maybe difficult to see them. You could see this idol. The idea was that all the people could see it elevated there. You can't see the idols in your mind, but God can. And he knows they're there. So last week in preaching and in hearing, it was searching. It was searching. I found it very searching to prepare this passage. And last Sunday, we said that there was a a number of verses missing from one of the hymns. We couldn't get them all on. Here Here is one of those verses. Throw light into the darkened cells where passion reigns within. Quicken my conscience till it feels the loathsomeness of sin. And I don't think we can read this passage without realizing how loathsome this whole matter of idolatry was to God. Made Moses angry. 
but it made God angry too. And we need our consciences quickening at times. We need to come and hear the gospel and rejoice and wonder at it and its glory and, its, and the beauty of the Lord Jesus and, and the blessings that are ours. But we do need from time to time to come and have the word of God quicken our conscience and make us feel and know that we're sinners and we need God's mercy. So we learned last week what an idol was and how it has so such a problem in our hearts and lives. And then we began to discover, didn't we, in this passage, um, how come these idols come about? Why, why is it they come about? Well, we discovered, first of all, the invisibility of God. That our, our life as a Christian, it is by faith. It was to be their life. And in, in Hebrews 11, we read that Moses lived by faith. The people were called to live by faith, but they wanted to see something. And it's a test, isn't it, of faith, the invisibility of God. Where is God? We follow the one who is invisible, yet revealed in his word. We must be careful when faith falters because of the invisibility of God. Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to see by faith. Open our eyes to see in your word who you are, what you have done what you do for us. Then secondly, we thought about the impatience of doubt, didn't we? We compared Exodus 24, 18, Moses, 40 days and 40 nights up there in the mountain with God. We compared that with Exodus 32 and verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down the mountain, that's when it all began, isn't it? Impatience. We don't know. Where, where's Moses gone? Where's he gone? Why doesn't God do something? Why, why can't I see God at work? You know, there are things which we pray for, aren't there? Things that we long for. Maybe they're good things. And we pray to God and we say, Lord, will you not grant that? Will you not hear my prayer? But when we become impatient, then we start to do things ourselves, don't we? We try and manipulate God's will. We try and do things to, to make God work. That's, that's idolatry. The impatience of doubt. We're to be like the psalmist that we read at the beginning. Waiting on God. And if you've woken up early in the morning, in those dark hours... And you've just waited for the next morning. It seems to come so slowly, doesn't it? When's the light going to come? And impatience can bring idolatry. Because we start to do things to try and make God work. And that's what they did, isn't it? It's exactly what they did. We, we, we want to see God. We want to see the representation of God doing something. Being the God that brought us out of Egypt. Well, we did those two things. Now let's go to thirdly, a new material this morning then. Thirdly, the impetuosity of unbelief. The impetuosity of unbelief. It's interesting, isn't it? Idolatry, impatience, impetuosity. When we get impatient, we're impetuous. Sometimes it's the other way around, but the two things come together, don't they? 
Let's read on the uh, rest of verse 1 and into verses 2, 3, and 4. Uh, and they said to Aaron, Come make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know where he is, what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. What were they thinking? What is Aaron thinking? What are they thinking? What are they doing? Well, where did this gold come from for a start? These people only months ago, were slaves. Have you seen slaves with lots of gold? Where did it come from? Well, we won't go back there, but if you go back into Exodus chapter 12 and read back the history of what happened, when after all those plagues had taken place, that great last plague, the angel of death came over. And in the end, not only Pharaoh wanted the people to go, but the people of Israel said, go, please go. You can have anything you like. It says in one of the versions, they plundered the people of Israel. Uh, we think about, we think about um, the people of Egypt. Thank you for correcting me. Um, they plundered. They plundered the people. We think of pirates, don't we? Plundering. Well, what it means is this, that they took with them. The people of Egypt said to them, look, take Take these things. Maybe they were superstitious. Maybe that was what it was. You take the gold. Take, take the gold. Take this with you. What the people don't know is this. That very soon, there are going to be instructions for that gold to be given for God. Just turn over. We'll, we'll just jump forward in the story, as it were. Uh, to chapter 35 and verse 21. Verse 20, chapter 35, verse 20. And all the congregation of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle for meeting, all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as of willing heart, brought earrings and nose rings and rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Now, we're jumping ahead in the story. Whilst Moses is up in the mountain, he is receiving detailed instructions for the building of the tabernacle, the place where God would come, where the people would decorate it with gold. And, and we're going to look at that in a few weeks' time. And we're going to be just amazed at the beauty and the wonder of this place and what it speaks of. But what are the people doing here? The gold that was meant to be for God has suddenly become for an idol. How they must have looked back, these people, when the instructions came and when Moses said, we're going to build this tabernacle that God has told us to build. And, and I need your gold and your earrings and everything else. And, and they looked at one another and said, what fools we were. We gave so much to that ridiculous idol. And it's like us, isn't it? It's like us. How much money and time and energy 
do we waste on stuff and activities and things that aren't going to last? And they'll end up like powder, like the idol did. And we'll look back and we'll say, if only I'd have given that to the Lord. If only I'd have given my energies to the Lord's service instead of this ridiculous thing I got involved in. If only I'd have given that those funds which I had, they've all just got frittered away. It could have gone to the Lord's service. All the time, all the time we spend on silly things. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, he says this, God made man of the dust and man makes a God of the dust. We're jumping ahead in the story, really, but we did read it this morning, didn't we? That this idol that is made, when Moses sees it, he gets it ground down. They've just beautifully engraven it. It's shining in the sun, glinting there. They're all looking at it and worshipping it. An idol, an idol. And Moses says, grind it down to powder, to powder, to dust. And then deliver it all around the camp. And make the people drink the dust in the water. And it was bitter. And it was horrible. And sometimes God has to work like that, doesn't he? He has to show us and say to us, that money, that time, that energy wasted, which was going to be for me. We're going to learn next week about how it is that we should... We should not allow idols to come into our hearts. Well, here's a help for us to think of it like this. Don't rush off and do your own thing. Be careful. Be careful. If God has given you resources, if God has given you all the gifts you have, your, your energy and time and money and everything else, he's given it you, hasn't he? Isn't it for him? Don't waste it on idols. Number four, what else do we see here? There are so many things we see. The influence of the world. The influence of the world. Did you not think it's strange in verse four why it is when they've broken off all their golden earrings and everything else and brought them to Aaron, that he makes a molded calf. Why a calf? Why not an image of a bird or another creature? Why not an image of the sun or a, a planet or something, something awesome? A calf? Well, the answer comes really in a quite a surprising place. So keep your finger in the Exodus 32, and go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, and we're told, we're told something about this. So in Acts 7, Stephen is being martyred for his stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is giving his testimony. It's the most wonderful testimony. It's a summary of God's, of God's work amongst his people. 
And in Acts 7 and verse 38, in the midst of what he's saying, he says this. He's talking about Moses, verse 38 of Acts 7. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel. Well, we know who that is, don't we? Who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. And then Stephen quotes exactly what we're reading in Exodus 32. But his explanation is this, inspired of God, it's in God's word. Every word counts. Every word is there for a reason. And it's there for a reason to tell us that what was happening here in their hearts, the people were going back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. Isn't it amazing? It's shocking, isn't it? To think all that God had done to free them from slavery. But in their hearts, they went back to being slaves. All that God had done to redeem them from their misery. And yet in their hearts, they went back to what made them miserable. All that God had done in salvation to get them away from that drudgery. And yet in their hearts, they're going back to the dreary, drudgery days of making bricks. If you Google, don't do it now, if you Google the Egyptian god Apis, A-P-I-S, when you get home or after the service, show it to one other young people, the Egyptian god Apis, A-P-I-S, you'll be shocked. Because you will read that in ancient Egypt, in the days of the pharaohs, they worshipped a golden bull called Apis. And the, it's just the same. It looks just the same. We can see in our mind's eye the molded calf. When you see it, you see the picture on Google, see it, see it on Wikipedia, you'll, you'll see the picture of it. And you'll say, well, that's just the same. Yes, Stephen knew what had happened. He's very perceptive. He said in their hearts they'd gone back to Egypt. In their hearts, they'd gone back to Egypt. They were thinking what the Egyptians did, how they worshipped, and uh, they could see their God, and it was a great bull. Maybe if we could have, well, maybe we could just have a calf. Maybe we don't want to go, well, it's a bit much to go back all the way there and be like them, but we'll have something of it. Isn't that what happens to us? Isn't that exactly what happens to us? The world says to us as Christians, back. Come back. Well, I couldn't do everything I used to do. No, 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 no. Don't, don't worry about that. Just come back. You can have a little bit of it. You can go back on those websites a bit. You can meet up with those friends again. Oh, not all the way, says the devil, but a little bit. You don't need the big ball. Can have a golden calf. Come back. 
It's no wonder, isn't it, that John, John, the apostle of love, we're going to read about next week, who speaks about idolatry. In 1 John 2 and verse 15, he says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, he means the, he means the, the things that come in the place of God, idols, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you wonder sometimes in your Christian life, why is it? Why is it that I don't feel God? Why is it that I don't feel blessed? And why am I not making any progress? Well, maybe as Stephen says, you in your heart have gone back to Egypt. You've not done the big bull thing. But the golden calf is there. And you're looking at it, and you're going there, and it's attractive, and it's taking you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to remember, like Newton says, fading is the worldling's pleasure. All this boasted pomp and show, solid joys, and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. It's what these people needed to know, isn't it? They needed to have a good dose of John Newton's hymn. But they'd gone back in their hearts. Number five. Indwelling sin. That remains. Indwelling sin. That remains. Well, of course, it is sin, isn't it? Idolatry is sin. Uh, Moses absolutely points that out, doesn't he, uh, to the people. He speaks to them of their sin. We're going to read it and see it and deal with it next week. Indwelling sin. You see, as Christians, we are justified. Before God, we're justified. Just as if I'd never sinned, covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's what we call positional sanctification. My position is cleansed, renewed, forgiven, on my way to heaven. None can remove that from me. But sanctification, which is progressive sanctification, is that which goes on throughout my life. Because there is indwelling and remaining sin within me, which dogs me and keeps coming up and biting me and coming up like a golden calf, rising up so I worship it. And this is what happens. And so we find here the people do the classic thing, which sin does. When God says, do not, they do. Guess what? When God says, do, they do not. There's a perversity in us. At my mum's Thanksgiving service on Thursday, we, I was just saying a little bit about my past life when I was a little kid, and uh, my grandma was a seamstress. She worked uh, turning up trousers, sewing on buttons, that sort of thing, in a little room in a terraced house, not far from where we were for that funeral service. And I could go anywhere. I could go anywhere in the house when I went round on a Saturday for my bacon and sausage, which my grandma always cooked for me, but I was not allowed in a sewing room you know where I went? In a sewing room. 
I, I don't know what it was. I was a little boy. What have I got to do with bobbins? What are bobbins? With bobbins and, and, and needles and all those things. Well, of course, I wasn't supposed to be there. But I went there. You know, when we look at the Ten Commandments, last week, some of us were talking about this afterwards. How, how the Ten Commandments begin with idolatry, don't they? A warning about idolatry. Have no other gods before me, says God. In other words, no, no other gods in front of me so that you can see me entirely. There's no, nothing spoiling the view. Well, idols spoil the view of God. And then he says, don't make a carved image. And then he says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. In other words, other names can get higher than my name and be idols. And then he says, don't make the Sabbath day holy. And when the Sabbath day is not holy, it means that we've put things in on a Sunday which are nice and attractive, take us away from thinking about God. And you go right down the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. God's order. If we don't do that, we're putting up gods, idols, murder, thinking of that in our hearts, if not actually doing it. But what we're saying is hatred, hatred comes in and hatred is hiding idolatry because we want something and we'll kill something and do something horrible to achieve it. And adultery, adultery, do not commit adultery. Adultery, what's adultery? It's when a man or a woman looks at another woman and thinks, they are beautiful and I want them. And God says, no. You want me first and my ways and stealing and false witness. You can go through them all. I won't do that. But right at the very end, it's very significant. In Colossians 3 and verse 5, it says to death, it says this, that we are to put to death all these different sins. It lists sins down and it says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And it's almost like this. Right from the very beginning of what God says in the commandments, if you like, his do's and his do nots, he speaks about idolatry. Right to the very end of the commandments, number 10, covetousness, which is idolatry. You see? how every commandment is broken because of idolatry. And how significant it is that when Moses comes down from the mountain, in his fury of what the people have done, in his righteous anger, he smashes the commandments and every one of the commandments is broken. It's symbolic. It's the most amazing thing to think about. That our indwelling sin that remains, puts up idols at every turn. You see how important the Ten Commandments are. People don't want the Ten Commandments today. But as Christians, we do. We need them. We need them to show us where the idols come. So indwelling sin that remains. Number six, ignoring all of God's directions for worship. Ignoring all of God's directions for worship. Only a couple of weeks ago, we had that first P, didn't we? Back in Exodus 20, the last part. So straight after the Ten Commandments, what does God speak about to Moses? 
that Moses has got to convey to the people. Well, we called it a primer for worship. Now, there's going to be a lot about worship coming up concerning the tabernacle and the presence of God in the tabernacle and how the people are to come before God through that means. But before that happens, God sets out very simply four things. You might remember them. Number one, God is holy. Number two, we are sinners. Number three, we need a mediator. Number four, there is to be sacrifice on an altar. Remember about that altar. It was to be plain. It was to be simple. It was not to be raised up. It was to be of the earth. It was to remind them of their humble situation before a holy God. And in chapter 32, every single instruction that God gave, and he gave it so simply, so plainly, they couldn't look through it and say, well, it's pages long. We didn't read page 32, subsection 4, paragraph 7. Oh, we are sorry about that. No, it was just so simple. And yet every single part is broken and disobeyed. You see in verse 5 that Aaron says tomorrow is going to be a feast. There is no commanded feast for this day. If you cross-reference Leviticus 23 sometime and have a look, you'll see the commanded feasts that God commanded. This is not one of them. Aaron decided he's going to do something beyond what God says. They're going to sacrifice to the idol which is what God says they should never do. They are taking what theologians call today the regulative principle and breaking everything in it. I hope that you know something about this book, the 1689 Confession of Faith. If you've not got a copy, there's some copies on the way out. This helps us because it tells us in here what is in God's word about worship? Listen to what it says. The light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just and good, and who does good to all. Therefore, he is to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, and all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God has been instituted by himself, and therefore our method of worship is limited by his own revealed will. He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan. He must not be worshipped by way of visible representations, such as idols and statues and pictures and so on, or by any other way prescribed other than in the Holy Scriptures. It has always been the case. Not just from 1689, from 1447 BC. No, before that, from the first day that Adam was made. God is to be worshipped as God instructs we are to be worshipped. 
He is to be worshipped. That is why we are very careful in our services to think carefully about what we do, how we do it, the hymns we sing, the things we read, the things we speak of, because God is to be worshipped in the way that he instructs that worship to be. And you and I are to live for God a life of worship in the way that God prescribes. And anything else is idolatry. It's idolatry. You see what happens here? Can you see in verse 6? So the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In verse 19, there's dancing. In verse 25, everything is unrestrained. The New King James Version uses a polite way of saying, they were naked. There's unrestrained dancing and singing and eating. I used to work on Broad Street in Birmingham. I used to park my car and walk around to the front of the office. And I walked past a nightclub every day. And outside it said this, eating, drinking, and cavorting. And it was packed. Packed. On Saturday night particularly. That's what the world wants to do. It's not what God has commanded us to do. So this morning, last Sunday, it's a seriousness about this, isn't it? How, how serious this is. The world comes in. Idolatry comes. So I ask you, Christian, behind that very orthodox smile and behind that very nice exterior, what's going on inside? What excesses of idolatry are there? Here's the last thing then this morning. Number seven, the ineffectiveness of leadership. The ineffectiveness of leadership. We, we all see, don't we, reading Exodus, that it's Moses who is the leader. He is the leader. But remember back, remember back to be, when Moses was first called, what did he say? I can't speak. I can't do this. I just can't do it. I, I, me go to Pharaoh? No way. God was gracious, wasn't he? Gave him his brother Aaron. Aaron would be a spokesperson. Aaron would come with him. They would stand side by side. They're in Pharaoh's court. It's great when you've got a great friend, isn't it? You've got a trickier, difficult situation. Oh, just my, one of my colleagues from work, it was his birthday yesterday. I haven't seen him for 15 years. Sent him a note, said, happy birthday. And he sent me a note back, just a little reminder of what we used to do together. And there were times in, that, in the business when we... When I used to say to him, Dave, can you come with me? Come with me to this meeting. Because I, I can't do this on my own. Now, Moses said that to Aaron, didn't he? He trusted Aaron. God gave him Aaron. Aaron was to be the leader. Now, where's Moses? Well, verse 1 tells us. We don't know where he is. We don't know where he is. It's been 40 days and 40 nights. We don't know where he is. He might get eaten by a, by a wild animal. He might have fallen down a ravine. God may have destroyed him. Where is he? Aaron, you're the leader. How does Aaron do? It's a disaster, isn't it? It's a disaster. He's weak. He's ineffective. He's easily persuaded. 
He's unwilling to stand up and say no. He's compliant. He's complicit. Aaron bows down himself to the idol of popularity and compromise. And then when Moses comes down, what a verse, verse 24 is. You notice that? Exodus 32 and verse 24. Aaron's explaining to, to Moses what happened. It's a pretty pathetic excuse, isn't it? And then he says in verse 24, And I said to the people, whoever has gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me. I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. It's a joke, isn't it? It is absurd. Aaron, Aaron, what are you talking about now? You made it. You see, in our day, we need leaders. We need Christian leaders. The Church of England needs Christian leaders. Men who will stand up because the church is bowing down to the idol of the culture of the day. And we need to stand up. And elders need to be gracious and kind and loving and Christ-like men, but they need to be men who stand up for the truth and stand out for the truth. And Aaron sadly failed. So in verse 25, we read, the people were unrestrained. They were naked. Why? Because Aaron hadn't restrained them. Because Aaron as leader didn't say, no, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. And Aaron didn't say, come on, people, we're going to do it this way. This is God's way. That's what a leader does. A leader says, not this way. Come God's way. I think Joshua learned a great deal in Exodus 32 because he heard Moses say, who is on the Lord's side? Sixty years later, Joshua will have to say, Choose you this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What are you learning, young people? What are you learning? You may be leaders in the future. You may have to stand up. You may have to stand here. You may have to stand up at school, at college, in work, somewhere else. You may have to stand up in this dark day and say, no, we're not going that way. We're going God's way. So leadership is not just thinking about well, that's, that's, that's David and Lee and David and, and Richard and Peter. No, 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 it could be you. And if you're a father, it is you. If you're a father, if you're a husband, it is you. If you're a young people's leader, it is you. If you're older than others who are looking up to you, it's you. You're the leader. They're following you. There's always somebody following you. Never forget that as a Christian. Always others are watching you. And they'll take the standard of Christianity from you. It's fearful to think about. It's why we run to God and ask for help and strength. Now in Thessalonica, all those years ago, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he saw something remarkable happen. And he writes about it when he writes to the church. He tells them in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9 that they turned to God from idols. What is the task of the leader? Whether it be husband or father or young people's leader or just you are older than others or elder or whoever we are. It is to stop 
those who have turned from idols to serve the living God, from turning back to where the world says, come back, come back. It's very important. So why preach Exodus 32 with such passion? Why preach it over three weeks? Couldn't we get moving again? Well, we'll get moving. But we need, first of all, God to come with his conscience pricking word. But we don't leave it at this point and just say, well, it's pretty hopeless, isn't it? It's pretty hopeless. And uh, uh, you see the idols in your life. We're going to see next week what we do, what we have to do. But we note this. If you read on, we've sought to see, haven't we, the primer for worship, the presence of the angel, the promises that the people made, and the problem of idolatry. But there's a P that's coming, praise God. It is the presence of God among them. From this low point, the next chapters are all about the presence of God among them. He's a merciful God. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't turn away from them. Moses intercedes for them. And there is a future and a hope and a promised land to go to. Let's spend this week reading that next passage and thinking, how do we go from here? Because there is a way. There is a way. But first, the idols have got to go. Let's sing our last hymn now. After this, the children are going to go outside into the other room, but we're going to sing, O Claw, a closer walk with God. And William Cooper says, The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only. <laughs>
that there might be that pure light marking the road that leads me to the Lamb. The darkness may be behind us, and the light of the life and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ may be ever before us, that we might love you and serve you the better. And uh, these idols may be torn from your throne, we pray, to your praise and glory, as we give our testimony, perhaps in years to come, that these days in this chapter were a real moment of change in our hearts and lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.